Hello and welcome to Maths on the Move, the podcast from plus.maths.org. I'm Marianne Freiberger. You might have heard in the news that the UK musician Ed Sheeran was in court recently for allegedly having plagiarized one of his recent songs. My colleague Rachel Thomas spoke to our favorite music correspondent, Oli Freak, to find out more about this issue and what it has to do with maths. And also, very excitingly, Oli gave Rachel an audible illustration of some of the connections between maths and music that people always talk about, but which can feel a bit theoretical. So take it away, Oli. Ed Sheeran was sued for the song Thinking Out Loud, as you mentioned, from 2014, by the estate of Marvin Gaye for the song Get It On from 1973. Um, and the songs do have remarkable similarities. There's no doubt about that. The chords are the same. The melody is very similar and the rhythm and groove are also pretty much the same. So I think the case from the estate of Marvin Gaye were, you nicked the song, so um, we're going to sue you. Um, which is one approach. <laughs> um, and I think the mathematical aspect of that is if the chord structures are the same, and they are, um, could that have been a coincidence? Could Ed Sheeran have possibly come up with the same chord structure simply by coincidence? And once we start talking about coincidences, you can start making calculations. How many chord sequences are there? And what are the chances that he may have stumbled across this same chord sequence entirely independently and not stolen it at all? So if we were going to try and calculate this coincidence, you know, how likely it is that he could have stumbled on it by this, this similarity by accident, how would we go about doing that? So this song um, is a four bar chord sequence and there's one chord per bar, a very typical pop music structure. Um, and we have a choice of seven chords per bar. So it's a quite straightforward calculation, um, except for the fact there are two main scales, there's major and minor, so we will double the result. So the simplest combination calculation is seven times seven times seven times seven. And that gives the number of chord possibilities, which equals 2,401. So there are 2,401 different ways to organize seven chords over four bars in the way that this song is structured. We'll double it for the major and minor um, options and that or scales that could be used and that gives us 4800 so that calculation gives you you have four bars one chord per bar and because there's seven options for a chord it's seven times seven times seven times seven to give you all the possible combinations of chords but then you have to double it because you've got major and minor chords and that gets you about 4800 of all the possible chord progressions you could have across four bars. Yeah, I mean, this is quite a gross simplification. There are, of course, more chord types and there are different modes. So you can, we can, we could expand that number, but it just gives you a sense of, of um, how you might look at it. Does that seem like a big number of possibilities to you as a musician or, or not? I think this is where we have to get into the sort of cultural aspects of how music works, because it's not really that Ed Sheeran's rolled the dice and come up with a random chord sequence and uh, decided that would make a nice song. No, he's, he was writing a song in the style of Motown. And if you're writing in the style, um, styles have certain tropes, genres have tropes, they have certain chord sequences, they have certain melodic identities, they have certain grooves, certain instrumentation. And if you want to write a song in the style of Motown, 
then you kind of have to use the types of chords and melodies and instrumentation that Motown has. Otherwise, it's not going to sound like Motown. So you were already restricting yourself to, you know, a very small pool of chords. And we know from pop music that there's actually, there are certain chords that are used over and over again. The, the bebop chord sequence is very well known. Thousands of songs written using that four chord sequence. And, and this song is another example of a fairly typical chord sequence that you would find in a Motown type song. So I think... Once you look at it from that perspective and the fact that musicians learn by copying other musicians, we learn songs, we learn how to play our instruments by repeating music that's gone before. So once you start thinking from that perspective, um, you're really just asking, did Ed Sheeran deliberately steal this song to deliberately make money off the back of, of somebody else's music? And the jury decided that no, he didn't do that. I think there's possibly a wider question about cultural in who who originates certain styles of music and who is benefiting from it in the long run but i think that's a much wider and more complicated question mm. and I, I just think it's so interesting that you're saying so there's this mathematical thing that this mathematical argument well there's a you know with with lots of simplifications there's a one in four thousand eight hundred chance that you randomly picked um this seat that he randomly hit on the same one but really you're not picking randomly out of one in 4,800 possible chord sequences like you're saying it's drastically reduced because of the nature of how music sounds and particularly the genre that you're working in that's really interesting. The serialists rolled dice to generate music randomly <laughs> and um, I don't think anyone really liked it that much <laughs> so you know there's a limit to uh, to random music generation. They didn't sell as many albums as Ed Sheeran I'm guessing. Sadly not. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie we're good friends anyway but I particularly um, talked to you about maths and music because you've written us some really nice articles about maths and music for plus.maths.org and the one that kind of came up related to this case was the how many melodies are there article and so that's a bit more complicated that cut the mathematics of that than the the mathematics of have how many chord sequences are what's the difference what, what do you have to consider when you're thinking about how many melodies there are rather than how many chord sequences there are yeah, that was that was a fun article to write. But the biggest difference, I think, was the number the number of notes. So we were doing four chords there, and here we had a string of ten notes. Which, and if you know anything about combinations, the more variables or the, the number of, of combinations there are, it, it goes up kind of exponentially. And then we added in um, differing rhythmic values of those notes. So instead of just one chord per bar, which just gives you a string of four simple things, we we really sort of um, increase that number by allowing different note values. So you might have the same note sequence, but with different note values or note lengths, and that just increased the, 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 the number enormously. So the, the number we got to, if you recall, was eight times 10 to the power of 19 different melodies of 10 notes, of up to 10 notes, including the, the lower number of, of uh, combinations. Um, which is just an extraordinarily huge number. I mean, it's ridiculous in a way, because not all of those are going to be nice melodies. So we're back to the serialists. I think they might have thought some of them were nice. And I think, you know, we could probably reduce it by thinking that some of the melodies are probably quite similar. We, we did dedupe, they weren't, they weren't in duplicates, but um, if you discount horrible melodies and very similar ones, and uh, you could probably reduce it a bit. It's still a lot, though. It's still a lot. Yeah, it's, an, it's a nice... Um way to realize that actually maybe the skill of musicians like yourself is that 
you're not just randomly picking one out of 10 to the 19. You're actually, there's a, there's a certain relationship between notes and what works, what sounds good to someone's ear, um, which in itself kind of has quite interesting mathematical ideas about it too, doesn't it? Well, you know, typically one thinks of a scale and though all the notes within it make, make for a pleasant melody. So you could just say, well, we'll just calculate that number. Um, but then you forget that human aesthetics likes the occasional accidental or note that's not in that scale, which technically is wrong, but uh, used well, we love it. Um, so you kind of have to include all the melodies with accidentals. Um, but obviously all the, that means you have to open the floodgates of everything. So it, human aesthetic judgment has, you know, limits the number of things we find attractive. But then again, um, how much of that is cultural learnings? You know, some, some melodies we think aren't pleasant now might become delightful in a hundred years because things, tastes have changed. So there's just no way of sort of applying a rule to what we might find aesthetically pleasing when thinking about combinations. So you just have to do everything because there's just no way of making arbitrary rules about human culture. Because we are all sort of, I guess we are all culturally trained by what we've grown up listening to. And I suppose it kind of trains your ear as to what you find appealing, which might be quite different now from in the past, or I guess between cultures, it might be quite different. That's a really important point. A lot of this thinking has been about Western tradition of music, where we've got the equal tempered scale and 12 notes and certain chords that we like. And of course there are, hundreds more different musical cultures around the world which construct music in totally different ways that we would find quite alien to here so it's yeah if i tried factoring those uh combinate well i mean we're never going to run out of music i think is the uh, line. <laughs> thank goodness for that <laughs> and um the other article that you wrote for us um which i really loved was um sign language and that was kind of talking a bit about the idea of the fact that music is built of sound waves and obviously we can mathematically describe a sound wave in terms of a sine wave. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about, you know, how sound waves play a part in music and how sort of the interesting maths about that? Yeah, I mean, when you asked me about this aspect, about maths and music, there are so many interconnections that are so fascinating. And again, they intersect with aesthetic judgment and engineering and math math the mathematics of sound and, and it's um, completely fascinating. So yeah, th I mean, it, initially I find it extraordinary that all sound, you know, the sounds we're making now can be decomposed into sine waves. And it was Joseph Fourier in the 18th century who worked out the, the equations for this and, and proved that that was the case. And I can kind of mathematically picture what a sound wave is, but I find it hard to translate that to the um, the physical feeling of hearing, hearing a particular note, say. Ollie, you've made some examples to help us understand this idea of how musical notes are actually built from oscillations. What, what are you going to play for us? So the first example are individual clicks that you can hear very discreetly as pulses. Um, and all I'm doing is speeding up the tempo uh, until it gets so fast we don't hear those individual clicks. We start perceiving those oscillations, if you like as actual note frequencies and we'll end on a middle C. So here we go. That's amazing. 
amazing. So you go from these individual clicks that like you're saying, and is it a middle C because the frequency at which those clicks are happening is the equivalent to the frequency of the pitch of a middle C? Exactly right. So when it started, the pulses were probably, hertz are how many oscillations per second do you have? And at the start there, it's probably like one per second or a couple per second, so one or two hertz, very slow. By the time it gets to the end, we're hearing 263 of those clicks per second, and 263 hertz equates to middle C on a piano keyboard. Any note that is a middle C will be oscillating at 263 times a second. So I've done it there with a click that I've sped up to that frequency, but um, a piano string naturally vibrates at that, that speed, which I, find, I, I agree. I think it's fascinating it, and amazing. It reminds me of that kind of magic you see of those old um, moving camera things where you can see the individual pictures and at a certain point your brain stops registering them as individual static pictures and they become a moving image. It's like it's almost like the transition from from static clicks to a solid pitch. It's amazing. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, actually, because we're not hearing the individual clicks. It's all merged into what we just perceive as pitch in the same way that film is just motion at that point. So what's going on in our brains to make that happen? It's you know, it's fascinating to think about. Yeah, yeah. And is there any other aspects of this idea that you wanted to talk to us about? Yeah, so I think another fascinating thing. So another fascinating relationship between maths and music that I find, you know, again, it's sort of intangibly bizarre almost mystical without getting too mystical but um ratios come into play with music in a, in a big way so whole tone ratios two to one three to two four to three actually construct the the major scale in in western music and, and a lot of scales around the world use whole base their their music on whole tone ratios so i thought i'd uh, play some examples illustrating that point because again you can say these things and it's like hmm, sounds interesting but what does that really mean yes so um i will start with so two to one is a one to, you know is a two to one ratio um that describes our octave so if you've got a c we had a c3 there and if you doubled that frequency to 530 ish hertz you'd have a c4 so it's still c but it's double the frequency so i'm going to so show that is Literally doubling the value of how many oscillations per second is what you mean by two to one. Yeah, so it's actually a logarithmic scale because you're doubling each frequency. So you're not going up in a linear, you're not adding the same amount, you're doubling it each each um, each octave. Um, and for some reason we like, I mean, this is where human interaction with this becomes interesting. We like that sound. So I'm going to start, so it's going to get faster again um, in stages. So we're going to start with hearing that click again. Um, at four hertz and eight hertz we're going to alternate so you can hear the difference and we'll get faster and faster until you can hear that they're an octave to start with they'll just sound like clicks but by the end we'll be um, bouncing around to a disco beat I promise <laughs> here we go So not unlike Blue Monday, you're going from one beat and then a faster beat, which has doubled the the tempo. Yeah. We're going to double that now to twice the speed. So same clicks. We're not changing the pitch of these clicks. Okay. We're just playing them faster. Okay. So now that just sounds like a bit of a mess, nothing in particular, <laughs> but you can hear that there is those clicks being repeated faster and faster. Yeah, yeah. Got two more to go. So now we're running at about 60. So the first, the slower ones are 16 hertz and the fast ones are 32 hertz. Okay. 
sort of subsonic still, but this is what it sounds like. I don't know if I'm imagining, but I'm almost starting to hear a pitch rather than, rather than, I mean, I could still hear their like, they're like clicks, but you're starting to get between you changing between them. You're starting to get a sense of some kind of up and down. Exactly. And then by the time we get to this one, now we're in the sort of base, we're in the sort of normal sub bass regions. So this next one is um, we're going to double the frequency again and we're getting more into the bass frequencies. So now it sounds like something you might hear on a record. So we're hearing 32 hertz and 64 hertz there, which is the sub bass frequencies. And there's actually quite a lot of high frequency content because I'm not using a sine wave, I'm using a click. So that's generating all the sort of buzzy stuff at the top. <laughs> but that's how synthesizers work. You know, we're basically making oscillations and then fiddling around with the frequencies. And it sounds great, I think. <laughs> it does sound great. No, that's amazing. And so that's what you were saying, that the kind of musical scale that we're used to and that sounds good to our ears is actually built of these whole number ratios between the frequencies of the, exactly. of the notes. Exactly. So I'll just do two more. So that was a mm -hmm. ratio of two to one. That was our simple octave ratio. So that's like an octave baseline. That's a common thing in disco. So you mm -hmm. might recognize that sort of vibe. But the three to two ratio is playing three clicks against two clicks in the same time um, distance uh, give, gives rise to a perfect fifth. Now, the weird thing about this is that when I play three against two with the same sound, it would just sound like a lumpy, non-rhythm thing. But by the time it's sped up to sort of audible frequencies, it just sounds like a perfect fifth, which is quite odd. It sort of diverges into two notes. Listen. So at the end there, I sort of muted one of the notes and the other one, so you could hear there are two notes there, and that is a perfect fifth. And that's just a ratio of three to two, which, uh, and you can do this for all the intervals, which I won't do because that'll take ages, but you get the point. The but I will play one last example. So you can go to town with this. So now I've done, this, I've repeated that previous one, but with um, the third of the note, which is a ratio of five to four. So if you have a five to four, that's a major third, that's part of the scale. And again, when it starts, it just sounds like a load of clicks, but by the end, it's a chord, which is again, crazy and fun. Here we go. <laughs> is a sort of chord I mean it's a bit buzzy but that's how it works that is that is totally magic to hear that happening that way it's exciting isn't it there's one last um math to music connection I mean there are so many out there but one other one that I find sort of tantalizing is that uh, the powers of two crop up a lot in musical structure for some reason I don't know why um bar, bars themselves the sort of smallest units of music or musical construction tend to be two three or four beats long obviously three is not a power of two but two and four are the most common powers of two um, and then when musicians build up sequences of um, 
music sort of note phrases or chord sequences, they tend to be two bars long, four bars long, eight bars long, 16, 32, 64, very common, especially in dance music. They're all powers of two. Why do we find powers of two a sort of satisfying unit of, you know, measuring out the music? I don't think anyone really knows, but it, it's sort of interesting. Again, though, worth noting, this is a kind of Western tradition thing and not all musical cultures use powers of two, but this one happens to and it's kind of that is That is fascinating. And um, talking about dance music, I mean, Ollie, I have been to gigs where you have been playing your excellent uh, music and indeed the crowd has been dancing. So can you tell us a bit about the kind of music you do and and what draws you to to it? Um, well, thanks, Rachel. I'm glad you've enjoyed the gigs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I've done all, I have done all sorts of music. I've done Brazilian drumming and electro and uh, sung with the Times Choir. But currently I'm into techno. And again, this is a style that actually has quite a lot of relationship with maths in, in a way that some other styles don't. So um, I know techno can be quite aggressive and it's not to everyone's taste. I happen to like the slightly more uh, minimal style, which I think is is less sort of ragey. So I'm just going to put that out there. Um, but what that sort of minimal techno is very interested in is how you can make music that, that doesn't seem to change very much continually interesting. And the way that a lot of techno producers have solved this is by use of polyrhythms and polymeter, which are different ways of making loops happen that don't coincide uh, in the sort of normal, in quotes, way. Um, so did they kind of weave together in some way the diff loops of different lengths or loops of different rhythms is that what you mean yeah that's pretty much exactly it so polyrhythms are where you mix two different rhythms together so you might have uh, triplets which are in three against sort of um, straight time which is in two together so you get a kind of a bit like some of those audio examples a bit sounds a bit lumpy but your ear kind of gets used to it after a while um and then there's polymeter where you have uh, bars of differing lengths playing alongside each other. So you might have one sound or in motif motif playing um, a three bar uh, riff and then another sound playing a five bar riff. And you play those, those together, they will only coincide every 15 bars because that's when they both reset together. So you're sort of on the macro scale, keeping things quite static in a way. But on the micro scale, scale things are always changing and keeping it interesting at least. That's the theory. And um, also uh, was the theory behind Philip Glass and Steve Reich and Lamont Young's minimalist music of the 60s. So um, it has a sort of uh, a noble heritage, I think. So, the, so there's a you're sort of building on the, this heritage of, of um, these minimalist musicians, you know, as well as all the other musical influences that you have. Definitely. And I think it's worth noting that the American min minimalists um, actually borrowed their ideas from world culture, from Indian music and African musics. And, uh, you know, I think they used it creatively. I think they acknowledge that, that relationship. But it's not unrelated to our first point, talking about Ed Sheeran wanting to write in the Motown style and borrowing from the Motown culture. And I think that's fine. That's how music works, as long as you're not actually stealing it or passing it off as your own invention, but acknowledging the sort of deep heritages that you might be referring back to with your own music. I think that's always, that's the sort of cultural aspect that can be um, tricky, shall we say, uh, but shouldn't be ignored. So Ollie, we can't finish the podcast without um, mentioning the fact that today's your birthday. <laughs> uh, happy birthday, Ollie. 
Thank you very much, Rachel. It's a true birthday treat to be able to talk about maths and music. I mean, this is, this is what life's about. <laughs> <laughs> You're very kind. And uh, well, we hope you have a lovely rest of your birthday filled with uh, techno and maths. Absolutely. You better believe it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you later. Thanks. Bye. That was Oli Freak talking to my colleague Rachel Thomas about the fascinating ways you can find maths in your music. You can read Oli's articles about maths and music on plus.maths.org by searching for how many melodies and for sign language. You can also find the links to those in the show notes for this episode. And of course, the music from this podcast is from Oli and the track is called Funk Off. You can find his music at soundcloud.com slash O-L-I-F-R-E-K-E. Thanks for listening and bye for now.